everybody, what's going on? This is Derek or Bird That Steals. And this is Justin, aka Soft Pillows. And we are DJ's Epic Quest back again here. Back again. DJ's back again. Call a friend. <laughs> Call a friend. Tell him to subscribe. Check us out. Our rap game's coming on pretty strong tonight. Mm, uh, uh, <laughs> I would say that that was a terrible attempt at a rap game, but uh, <laughs> yeah, what what do I know? We're, we're certainly no Eminem, no. but I mean, we're probably like a second-rate Eminem for sure. Yeah. Are there knockoff Eminems? Like, uh, maybe would... those are all the ones that were standing up. Ooh. Um, but I just meant like as far as candy. Like, are there knockoff M and M's? I don't know. Yeah, I was gonna call us that, but I don't think they exist. <laughs> <laughs> oh well. What's going uh, on, man? You know, not much. It's been a. It's been kind of. It's been a slower week. Uh, not really too much to report on, I guess. Uh. My my scars and my incisions from the surgery are, are healing up quite nicely. I'm not really in any type of pain or, you know, any level of uncomfortableness. So I'm so pretty... were you able to do a lot of dancing this weekend? I did. I did shake my ass at the wedding. Um, Danny always tells me to, when you're dancing, is just to write your name with your ass. So that's all I do is I just... Right I have never heard that. Yeah, I mean, you do it to the the rhythm of the music, and you know, you got yourself a a dance move. Huh. You know? And you could do <laughs> print, or you could do cursive. I choose to do the cursive butt wiggle. You could mix it up, even do both. Right? Yeah. Yes, you could. So, yeah, no, it was it was yeah, it was a blast. Uh, my cousin getting married was pretty cool. Um, oh, it was your cousin? Cool. Yeah, yeah, it was my my cousin. Yeah, it was fun. Oh, yeah, you don't want to miss that. No, not at all. Free beer. How can you not want to go? Exactly. Can't except turn that, that down. Right, except it was hams. It was hams beer, so like I had like seven of them, and I'm like, I'm not even buzzed. And I don't drink that much, so that's saying something. Yeah. I couldn't tell you the last time I had a hams. I want to say this was probably my first. Did you drink it warm? Uh, no, it was cold. It was cold. But I'm not a big IPA guy. I just For whatever reason, I just I can't stand the taste of hops. It's just so overpowering, uh, you know? Can I break some news to you? I already know what you're going to say, but go ahead. I don't think hams. Hams hams is just like a pilsner. It's like a basically like a cheap Bud Light. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. Oh, were you just going a different direction? Like, that's not, you, you weren't saying the hams tasted like that? Did I just misunderstand? Y- yeah, no, I was not saying that hams tasted like gotcha. that. I'm just saying okay. that, like, I, I guess... There were other beers, but they just happened to be IPAs. So that's why I was gotcha. drinking the hams. Yes. 
Sorry to jump your shit there, buddy. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. It's all right. Uh, it's humorous. It's it's an acquired taste. I I drank uh, the Bud Light limes. That's like what I because I didn't like beer at first. I drank Bud Light limes to kind of like acquire the taste, and then we're like the first craft beer that I really liked was uh, from Surly. It's called Todd the Axe Man. Now I'll I'll still drink Surly every now and again, but I'm not too big on them just. Because they've had, and maybe things aren't really what they seem, but they've had some bad press. Um, and it's probably cleared up some, but, and they're also, I mean, they're, they're pretty big now. Um, I like to try this, you know, the stuff from smaller places, not, uh, you know, something that's pretty big. I don't know. Just kind of my, my deal, I guess. Hmm. Interesting. I what was what was the bad press? I didn't hear about this. Um, they had like so their workers were trying to like unionize and they like shut it down and they said like it didn't have anything to do with that. I don't remember exactly what the story was, but um, yeah, basically, and I guess I don't even know now if if they did end up unionizing later. Um, but yeah, the owners like shot it down and like did not let it happen. I think they might have fired some people. I don't. I'd have to go back and look. But um, I don't currently work in a union. I've worked in two. One of them was a really good union. The other one was horseshit, um, and may as well not have been there. But overall, I'm a pretty big proponent of unions. So. Yeah, I would agree with that. I I have never worked for a union, but. I have uh, heard good things. Yeah, I mean, it's like anything. There's good and bad, and, you know, I can recognize that. But uh, the one that was good, I was in the Steelworkers Union for a bit, and uh, they were really good. I'll tell you a quick story. So in the, the break room, they had, like, ketchup and mustard on the tables for the guys. And... One, one time, they, you know, the ketchup ran out, so whoever buys it decided to buy, like, the cheap brand, not, like, the Heinz, you know, or whatever brand it was. And so somebody filed a grievance over that. <laughs> and <laughs> they won it. They, you know, they so I can't think of too many places where that is going to fly. But I'm sure the guy, you know, the manager is probably like, just buy him the fucking ketchup, and why are we dealing with this, like... Quit trying to save a buck by the stupid ketchup, you know? Right. Yeah. It's not like their profits are marginally different than an extra dollar for some good ketchup. I didn't eat the, I don't like ketchup, so it was not really a big deal to me. I didn't care, but it, I definitely thought it was funny. Yeah. I'm, uh, I don't mind ketchup. It's not, it's definitely not my first third or first, second, third, fourth, fifth, or even sixth choice. But uh, I will take many other sauces before ketchup. Yeah, I mean, I'll eat it on a burger like if it comes with it, but I'd rather just have it without. Right, yeah. I don't I don't dip my fries in, in ketchup. I'd rather have them in barbecue sauce, like a honey barbecue. Hmm. I've heard of people doing like honey, but I, I guess I usually just do ranch. Yeah. 
it depends on the ranch. Like fast food ranch, gross. But you know, some of it's pretty good. Some like, of it sucks though. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I'll do like a Chipotle ranch. Like those are good. Oh, agreed. But yeah, I mean, I guess how have you been? Anything new? Uh, not really. Um, we had a little get together here at our house on Saturday, some friends, coworkers and stuff. And, uh, I had a few beers. Wasn't terribly hungover. Had a little, just kind of tired and like a tired headache Sunday morning. And that was about it, but a pretty good time. Gotcha. Made a bunch of, we had, uh, walking tacos. I'd never had a walking taco before, but we did that. And it was fun. What's a walking taco? Oh, you get like a bag of Doritos, like a personal size bag of Doritos. Oh, okay. Like a scoop of taco meat, whatever other toppings in there, and kind of shake it up. Gotcha. I've seen those. I just didn't know that that's what they were called. Well, maybe they have a different name too. I'm not sure, but that that's what I've heard them called. Got it. Got it. Um, well, glad you had some fun. And we're mildly hungover. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, I guess, uh, you know, it's crazy to think about is we have like 130-ish pages here, and then we're done with this book. Yeah, it's... I've still got the ants in my pants feeling like I just want to cruise through the rest of this, but... Yeah. Yeah, me, me as well, but... I don't know. I feel like I've kind of learned to appreciate, you know, our process, even though it requires me to be a little patient, um, especially with moving on to the next chapter. So, yeah, it's cool. I'm liking this book. Really, really liking it. For sure. Yeah. You got to trust the process. I think we got a good one, but it's I, I really wanted to read this chapter a second time. I just did not have the time with how much I worked last week and then this weekend. So um, if I'm a little rusty on this chapter, that's why. So I've, I've got my summaries here, but I didn't have a lot of, I guess, additional notes for it. But we'll definitely have some talking points. Yeah, I think so too. And and I think that, and, you know, we can maybe dive into this as we go through this chapter and, and the sections here. But I I maybe read this chapter three times and I also didn't have a lot of extra things to say because I guess to prepare the audience it's to me it's kind of a transit like everything just transitions well within the sections it's not there isn't really like a, a lot of stuff to break down it's just it's very like not action oriented is probably the wrong word but it's you know it's not it, it's just, it's very pacey. It's just a very pacey chapter. Yeah, I, I would agree with you there. I just kind of, this thought kind of just popped into my head, but I mean, we're mostly done with this book. Like you said, we don't have a whole lot left, a little over a hundred pages, but you know, we have these different sections, these different point of views within each chapter. It's just amazing to me. How do you write that? How do you keep everything straight? Like, there's definitely got to be some thought and some purpose to the way that he did this. And 
it just kind of blows my mind. I, I certainly could not do it. No, I, I couldn't either. Like just the whole like fact of continuity, you know, in any type of media, you know, whether that's video or animation or books or, you know, whatever, whatever that it is, just making sure that like everything is aligned is, um, you know, is accounted for. But, and and just you know with the fantastical way that Steven Erickson writes. Uh, yeah, it's pretty pretty awesome. Well, cool. Um, do you want to kick off our epigraph for chapter eighteen here? Uh, I was going to ask if you wanted to take it. How do you do you, you want to rip it up? Yeah, I can do it. I just got to go back. All right. To, uh, that page. Not to put you on the spot. No, it's cool. Yeah, and it's I mean this is our 19th episode, so we next episode here will be our 20th episode. Yeah, it's a, a pretty big milestone. I mean, you know, for I feel like it's a pretty big milestone. I mean, everybody starts at one, right? And we're still going. So it feels good. It does feel good. It does feel very good. All right, our epigraph for chapter 18 of Gardens of the Moon. And this blue city hides under its cloak, a hidden hand that holds like stone, a blade envenomed by the eight-limbed Peralt. The sting brings death in the span of grief that marks a final breath. So this hand defies sorcery's web and trembles the gossamer's, the gossamer's strand of a spider's deadly threat. This hand beneath the blue city's cloak drives home power's gentle balance. All right. We'll just move right on into the first section here. Awesome. Let's do it. All right. Excuse me while I clear my throat. Whiskey Jack asked Kalam if he was up to it. Kalam said there wasn't much choice as he sharpened his knives. He looked at Quick Ben in the corner with his eyes closed, holding a piece of bedroll in his hands. Fiddler and Hedge took apart and cleaned their massive crossbow. Whiskey Jack knew every hour that passed brought their hunter brought their the hunters closer and closer. The Tisty Andy made him most nervous. He knew his squad was good, but they weren't that good. Trots leaned against the wall, and Mallet was Mallet slept snoring loudly. Whiskey Jack turned back to Kalam and said it was a long shot. Kalam nodded in agreement and said there's no reason for the man to show himself again since they got burned the last time. But he will try the inn again. Maybe someone from the guild will mark him and they'll show up. Maybe he can get a word in before they kill him. Odds don't look good, but it's all they've got. Whiskey Jack says if things don't go well tomorrow, they detonate the intersections and hurt them that way. Quick Ben woke up and said he can't find sorry anywhere. Whiskey Jack asks what that means. Quick Ben figures she's dead. Holding the cloth, Quick Ben says there's no way the rope could hide from him. Fiddler says maybe he quit the game. Quick Ben says the god isn't afraid of them. If anything, it's more likely he would be coming down on them. Shadow Throne must have told him who he is, or rather, was, and gods don't like being cheated especially twice. Quick Ben says he's stumped. 
Whiskey Jack asks if they should just abandon her, and Quick Ben says they may as well. They all wished they were wrong about her, but what Sari had done had nothing to do with being human, and he's glad of that. Clem says he'd hate to think that evil was real and it existed with a face as plain as the next man's. Quick Ben says it keeps you sane every, every time you order someone to die. And they'd be the last to suggest another way that Whiskey Jack hadn't thought of yet. Whiskey Jack says he appreciates it and asks if anyone else has anything to say. Fiddler says he does. And I will read the quote here because I really liked it. Uh, I think it's a good quote. And it would have been a lot to type, so I will just read it here. Fiddler straightened in his chair and cleared his throat. Hedge poked him in the ribs as he was about to begin. After a menacing scowl, he tried again. It's like this, Sergeant. We've seen a lot of our friends die, right? And maybe we didn't have to give the orders, so maybe you think it's easier for us, but I don't think so. You see, to us, those people were living, breathing. They were friends. When they die, it hurts. But you go around telling yourself that the only way to keep from going mad is to take all that away from them. So you don't have to think about it. So you don't have to feel anything when they die. But damn, when you take away everybody else's humanity, you take away your own. And that'll drive you mad as sure as anything. It's that hurt we feel that makes us keep going, Sergeant. And maybe we're not getting anywhere, but at least we're not running away from anything. There was a silence in the room. And Hedge punched Fiddler in the arm. I'll be damned. You got a brain in there after all. I guess I've been wrong about you all these years. Probably the most heartfelt quote of the book. It just really struck home for me. Whiskey Jack could see the care in each man's eyes. And Open offered a friendship he'd spent years pushing away. And they kept coming back. Whiskey Jack wrestled the idea of sorry not being human. Everything she'd done was within the bounds of humanity, but were in flux, but it did not collapse. He had seen much in his life, many terrible things, and it wouldn't change his view on humanity now. It was hard for him to admit it, but now he was with friends. He gave the order to ready arms. There would be an inspection soon, and he'd better not find anything out of order. Yeah, that I I really like that quote as well. Um and I think it just kind of accentuates the way that Whiskey Jack is feeling at this moment in time because I feel like he's revelation is probably a strong word for it, but I think that he's come to terms with the fact that like I think that like this up until this point he's been spending his like his mindset is around like i can't have friends because they're just going to die i can't i just have to be this stoic man who gives orders and sometimes those orders are death or could lead to someone's death and i think that it's kind of a turning point for him and he recognizes that no matter what what i do or put these this group through like they're up they're still here i'm stuck with them and that's a good thing, you know? And then this quote by Fiddler just, I don't know. It just, it made everything sit nicely for me. Yeah, it, uh, I, I kind of felt like 
it it almost validated him as a leader. You know, it, they recognize that he's got to make these tough calls. And sure, it's okay to feel bad about it. But at the end of the day, you know, you still got to do the job. And the rest of the squad recognizes that. But don't – I think, you know, he doesn't want – uh, Fiddler doesn't want, you know, to be treated, you know, like a number, you know, they're, they're people, they've got feelings, they mean things, you know, somebody's brother, father, son, whatever, um, you know, it's just not a wasted life. Right, exactly. It's just, it's funny going back to when we were first introduced to these characters. Do you remember that? Like Captain Paran like encounters encounters them in in pale not whiskey jack but fiddler mallet hedge um and i I don't know i guess i just didn't know what to think of these these characters at first and now i kind of adore them a little bit yeah it's kind of it's kind of just like he's saying you know like you've we've got to learn a little bit about them, you know, as the people they are, you know, not just, not really just a character, you know, we've spent some time with them. Right. Yeah, exactly. But I think that, um, I don't know if, if, if sorry really has anything to do with whiskey Jack's, I guess, kind of turn of point of view, uh, within himself, but, I find it interesting that, you know, we as the reader, we know that it was definitely because the rope was removed from the possession of Sari. But Quick Ben just kind of just brushes it off like, oh, she must be dead because I can't contact her. But then, uh, you know, Fiddler kind of nails it on the head when he says, like, maybe he quit the game. In a sense, he kind of did. Not not voluntarily by any means, but like he did quit. And Just that was kind of the deal that he made. Right. I mean, I, I don't, I, I definitely don't. I feel like Cotillion, uh, I feel like it would be really stupid for him to just not exist. You know, I, I, I feel like he's going to make a comeback in some way, shape or form. I just don't know when. Yeah. I, it, yeah. The, like, it kind of, in a sense, it kind of happened off screen, off page. And I don't think it's just going to be left at that. No, no, not at all. Not at all. But yeah, it was just, it was another section where, you know, you really get a sense of the camaraderie between the two and you get kind of a, a, a little peek into Whiskey Jack and, and his mind. And I think that he's just overall finally found and appreciates the fact that like these are not only his soldiers, but like they're his friends. Yeah. As much as maybe he doesn't want them to be, <laughs> but you know, it's hard to see your friends die. And I, you know, obviously it's what he must be afraid of. Right. Yeah. And you know, I can, I can understand maybe the, the estrangeness that whiskey Jack feels like closing himself off kind of, putting up a wall um, as far as friendship goes, because, you know, he's going to have to make some decisions that 
he probably, you know, isn't really in favor for, but maybe necessary and would cost his friends their lives. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, the last thing anybody wants to see is their friends die. But, I mean, that's, you know, that's that's uh, war sometimes. I mean, you know, any moment really could be your last. Yeah, that's true. But I guess outside of that, I didn't I didn't have much for this section. I think that's probably the bigger takeaways, those two. Yeah, I, I guess I would say that, I mean – that was probably my favorite quote so far in the story. And I don't even really think it's close. That one just, it really stuck out. Yeah. I would hundred um, percent agree with that. Yeah. And coming from kind of like an unexpected character too. Yeah. Not really a, a, a major character, you know, a, like a secondary character but yeah it was kind of surprising to see that yeah absolutely but yeah i guess if you're cool we can move on to section two here yeah go for it colin peran's journey had been slow call's wound had opened up many times since their journey began call had found a way of sitting in the saddle where most of his weight had been on the uninjured leg making it so the wound hadn't reopened today. Paran had sensed a mood from Call. Despite the bond that had formed between them, they said but a few words since that morning. Call's leg looked fucking awful. They didn't get much help from the garrison at the Catlin Bridge. The lone surgeon there had been sleeping from one of his quote-unquote off nights. They were supplied with clean bandages, which were already soaked through with blood at this point. They approached the edge of Worrytown. Call, having a conscious moment, asks, asked Paran if they were at Worrytown Gate. Paran, while unsure, said that he thought that they were. Paran asks Call if they will be allowed to pass or will the guards call for a surgeon. Call explains that they'll let them through, but asks specifically for Paran to take him to the Phoenix Inn. Call's head sagged again, but was unable to mumble to Paran, but was able to mumble to Paran that there was someone at the Phoenix Inn with a healer's touch. Fixing his gaze on the gates of Jerujistan, he wonders to himself, understanding why the Empress wanted the city so avidly. Yeah. His like uh... Go ahead. Oh, I was just saying that like I liked, I really liked how this section really conveyed a little bit of sense of urgency for Call's leg. And you can't help but like be worried about him a little bit, you know, like from the reader's perspective. Like, you know, is he going to make it on time? Is like he going to die as they get there? Like, there's so many, I guess, scenarios that that Call could find himself in. Yeah. Just, uh, you know, reading this section, I got um, kind of vibes from Lord of the Rings where uh, the the, uh, the kid's riding on the horse and he's got a sister with him and they're going to 
King Faden. And they get to the city and he just like falls off the horse, like, because he's exhausted. That's obviously these guys aren't riding that hard, but kind of gave me a similar picture in my head. Or maybe even I think there's something kind of like that in Gladiator, if I remember right. It's been a long time since I've seen that movie, but um, just a comparison that I drew up in my head, I guess. I don't know. Sort of made me think of. Uh, I guess I am unfamiliar with The Lord of the Rings. But I think you are correct with the uh, the gladiator. I go to Game of Thrones with Khal Drago when he's sick, and you know, oh yeah, off his horse, you know. Yeah, that's a good one too. So, yeah, but um, I just I. I just put myself in, you know, I guess Paran's shoes here a little bit. You know, he has never seen the city before. But as soon as he sees it, like, he can understand why the Empress wants it, even though he doesn't really, I don't think that he really has the full picture of, I mean, we as the readers don't even have a full picture on what Empress Lucene really wants with Jerugisan. Like, we have clues based on some of the interactions between some of the different characters, but I think that there's still a lot shrouded in mystery as far as what exactly she's going to do. Yeah. I, I think so, too. But I don't, yeah. It's, I have a hard time even, I guess, beginning to imagine. Yeah. Do you, uh, I know this is probably really terrible, but do you remember the, the first chapter we met Krupp and he was, you know, kind of like walking in his dream or whatever. And he was passing by a bunch of women dunking cats. Do you remember that? <laughs> yes. So, um, I, 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 I'm glad I, you brought that up again. Okay, good. I'm glad I could bring it back around, but whenever, when I read this section and, um, you know, it was explained that the surgeon that was with the garrison had sleeping from one of his off nights. For whatever reason, I thought that just popped into my head. I'm like, I wonder if he was with like the chicks dunking cats. And that's why he was having an off night. <laughs> Is dunking cats a euphemism? I mean, maybe. Uh, you would, you would, yeah, you'd think that would be like dunking wiener dogs, you know? <laughs> you could be right it definitely could be a euphemism you know if if for whatever reason we ever get uh erickson on the show we can ask him um if <laughs> cats was a euphemism for something well we'll have to jot that down so we don't forget that question <laughs> right right he'd probably just be like you guys are fucking idiots <laughs> like that's what you took from that? No, <laughs> no, that's not what I meant. To, no, but I think you and I have a little bit of a an interesting state of mind sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It must be the Midwestern in, in us. Well, very well, could be. Yeah, but I guess the only other thing that I had for this section was that um, I know Call before he goes unconscious, you know, tells. Haran, you know, kind of in a mumble that 
there is someone at the Phoenix Inn with like a healer's touch, and I'm kind of wondering if he's talking about Krupp. Have we seen Krupp have any healing abilities? Well, we know that he can open Warrens because that is what he did when they first met Lorne um, in the good Droby Hills and then got knocked off his fucking his ass and onto his ass. Um, you know what I mean? So I guess I don't I don't recall him there being a specific Warren that he can conjure so to speak so i don't know if that's really been revealed yet but maybe he's a master of all trades and and can maybe do more than one so i just thought that that was an interesting an interesting detail there that i feel could have been very easily overlooked because yeah i mean call has to know that krupp you know he's a mage of some kind but I don't know. I just think it's alluding to so much more and I could very well just be overthinking it, but that's just kind of where my mind goes when it comes to Krupp, at least. I guess my my only little bit of pushback would be why wouldn't have Krupp just healed them before he left, you know, before they were separated after the, you know, their little battle with the adjunct. Gotcha. I see your argument, but I raise you a rebuttal. He, Fair. Let's hear it. He couldn't heal him because Crocus and, you know, sorry slash Absalar had left and Baruch's orders were to protect the coin bearer. So he had a sense of urgency to catch up with Crocus and couldn't therefore give time to call to heal him. But how much time do you think it would have taken? I guess, I don't know. In other instances where people are healed via a Warren, it doesn't seem like it takes a long time. But, you know, I feel like that would probably be a very uninteresting thing to write about. Like, you know, this Warren was opened and the calm, cool feeling of healing pulses through wounded dude's body. (laughs) Four hours later, all healed. You know what I mean? Like, so yeah, who knows? Right. I, I would assume that it's probably fairly quick, but you know, at the end of the day, Crocus needs some type of protection. However, for whatever reason, he doesn't. I, I mean, every any interaction he has without anybody, quote unquote, helping him, Opon intervenes. You know what I mean? Right. So, but I, I think that's probably one of the things that like they they're maybe just unaware of or don't want to take that chance or that risk. Yeah, that could be. I I think this is one of the the few things that we've come across, and it's it's not like we have a hard disagreement here, but. We're at different ends of things, and that really hasn't happened much in this book. No, not at all. And yeah, as you said, it's a very, very minor, minor thing, but it's good to have different perspectives. For sure. But I guess with that, should we uh, move on to the next section here? 
Yeah, it'll be a short, quick one here. <laughs> yeah. I'll get a payback on that later, though. This is true. All right. Section three. Ralik slowly climbed higher. He was tired, and he knew if not for the shadows, he would have easily been spotted this morning. Time was not on his side. He didn't know if his uh, friend had arrived at the gate or not yet. The quiet from the top of the tower could mean anything. He was exhausted, but only had a few feet to go. He knew his advantage lay in Ocelot being consumed with concentration. He kept climbing. Can I just stop and say that like, I really admire Balak's perseverance. Yeah, he's too legit to quit. Too legit to quit. Yeah. This is true. But, I I mean, again, you know, similar to Paran in in the last chapter, like, I can only imagine what is racing through his mind and how physically exhausted he has to be. If anything, like, I feel like the section really makes a good point of, like, he's exhausted. He's been climbing for god knows how long i feel like when we left relic he was just starting to climb and it was like nighttime so i would assume that he's been climbing for five or six hours straight i don't know i mean i I don't think it's like you know like some thousand foot tower he's climbing or something but it's got to be you know a couple hundred feet for sure and yeah, I mean, he doesn't want to get spotted, so he's probably moving slow. But, yeah, I, I mean, we also got to remember he's, like, free climbing here. It's not like he's got some gear. You know, if he falls, he's fucked. Right, right. Yeah, so on top of trying to be very sneaky and quiet, he's going extra slow, which is, you know, pretty exhausting on, you know, your muscles. But... Yeah, I just really, I really enjoy Ralik's perseverance, and it kind of like makes me feel like I'd like to have a guy in, in you know, like that in in my corner, right? Like, would do anything to make sure that like I stayed alive, etc. You know what I mean? Yeah, he's rocky. It's it's not how many times you get hit; it's how many times you get back up. Exactly, exactly. But yeah. I think this section was probably what, like five sentences <laughs> in the book. Yeah, it was pretty short. Not not too bad. Probably the the shortest one I had. It, it, right, but I, I think that it's it's even though it was a short section and it's kind of it's crucial. It's almost needed because without it, you know, it takes away that buildup. So. I think it was just, it was a nicely put point of view. Yeah. It, uh, it, I, get, I don't want to talk about it before we get there. I'll, when we get to that point, we can circle back to it, but it just, yeah, it kind of drives, drives home some points. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, if you're cool, we should move on to the next section. I am cool. Sweet. Passerby watched as Paran and Call made their way through Worrytown to the gates. Paran fixed his eyes on the two guards stationed at the gates. 
the, the two guards were also watching them approach. As Paran approached, he waved to allow them to pass through. One guard acknowledged this, but the other walked alongside Paran's horse. This guard makes an astute observation that Cole needs a surgeon, and he could have one here in about five minutes. Paran refuses the offer, telling the guard that he needs directions to the Phoenix Inn. As Paran is from the north and never been to the city, and that was the request of the man needing medical assistance. The guard is doubtful that Call will make it that far, but offers Paran an escort. Emerging from the gate, the other guard calls out in surprise. This other guard recognizes Call, stating that he had once served under Call's house. The guard named Vildron is confused and confesses that he was under the impression that Call was dead. The other guard backlashes and tells him to screw the writs, telling Vildron that he knows what he knows, and this is for sure Call. Paran pips in and tells the two guards again, the last thing Call had told Paran was to get him to the Phoenix Inn. The man nods and tells Vildron to get the wagon, as it should still be hitched up from the morning. Smiling up at Paran, this guard thanks him for bringing him back and explains that the wagon will be less jarring for Call. Paran thanks the guard and looks past him to, the, to take in the sight of the city. On a mound hill rose an old temple. Following the structure up with his eyes, he spotted the belfry, to which he could have sworn he saw movement. He squints his eyes at the tower. So yeah, I, you know, in my opinion, this is a pretty transitional section. I guess there's really not a lot of, of things to pick out about this particular section it's just kind of a a moving characters from what was the Gadrobi hills and their journey back into the the city gates and the focus is on getting called the medical attention that he needs but yeah i think it's it's pretty big though i think that you know this random guard recognizes him you know like he knows who he is yeah and i I guess I don't remember if it's been explained how long it's it's been assumed that Call's been dead. True. I don't know if you remember reading anything about that or not. I don't. Uh, I don't. No. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I guess I didn't take that into consideration. But but I think it's safe to assume that it, you know he's been presumed dead for a decent amount of time, right? Yeah, you know, I mean, guards, like, I know who this guy is. He's I would supposed to be dead, but he's not. Right? Yeah, I would definitely say, uh, you know, probably maybe right before we are introduced to Ralic and Crocus, because one of the first things that we get introduced to do is Ralic essentially killing um, Councilman Lim with whatever divine intervention told him or swayed his mind. So I guess the only, the only thing that I found really odd is that the way that I understand the summary is that Vilderon is not the guard that recognized call, but why, why bring attention to the guard that is less meaningful, meaningless? You know what I mean? Like why name the guard that, you know, is is skeptical, but not the one that recognizes call. Like, what is that about? Yeah, I don't know. 
I mean, I, I did not pick up on that. Maybe again, I'm overthinking it, but I just I find it odd, and and I feel like Vildron has some type of purpose, probably very very small purpose, but you know, maybe 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 this is Circle Breaker. You know, we never get his name, but. Or haven't yet. Or haven't yet. So maybe this is, but yet, why would he be skeptical if he probably knows that Call is alive, being that our assumption is Krupp is the the eel. So you would assume that Krupp would, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I'm going in a rabbit hole and I don't think I could get myself out, but. But I, I think you're right. I mean, I guess I, I don't know. Why do you, it seems like a detail you don't throw in unless there's a reason for it. Right. I, mean, I agree with you. Okay. All right. Cool. But yeah, I just I got a good sense of scale and, and scenery um, in this section. I could easily see a lot of a lot of the events taking place visually so i thought that was really cool but not really a lot to dissect right yeah just it's kind of a, a setup i think yeah definitely well we you ready to move on i am if you are yeah we're we're moving pretty moving along pretty well but things do get beefier here pretty soon so that is true. They do get beefy. That is a good word. Like a Taco Bell double beef burrito? That's right. Five-layer burrito. There you go. All right. Ralic poked his head over the edge of the belfry. It was empty. Then he remembered Ocelot's magic. As he pulled himself up, he saw the shimmer of Ocelot lying in front of him, aiming his crossbow below them. Ralic drew his knives and moved towards Ocelot. His boot drug on the floor, alerting his prey. Ocelot spun, drew, drew his bow, and without hesitation fired. The bolt disappeared. It had been magic, and Baruch's powder had worked. Ralik landed on him. He tried to stab Ocelot, but he hit Mail. He used the knife in his other hand to stab up under his arm. Ocelot grabbed Ralik by the braid and pulled and tried to bite his neck. Ralik kneed him in the balls, but Ocelot regripped and hit him with his injured arm, sending a wrist blade through Ralik's armor into his chest. He wound up for another attack, but Ralik cut his braid free and rolled to the side while Ocelot still tried to stab him. With all his remaining energy, he stabbed, Ra- he stabbed Ocelot in the stomach and drove the dagger to the hilt. He used the dagger in his other hand, and stabbed him in the fucking forehead. Ralik laid still, not feeling pain. Call would be avenged, and Morelia would have to do it. As Ocelot bled onto him, he said he always believed he was his match. He wanted to see the sky one last time. Instead, he saw the inside of the belfry roof and thought he could see eyes looking back at him. So it was a pretty in, a pretty intense little fight scene that uh you know i I tried to i guess i don't want to say quickly summarize it but you know give the the gist of it here and man both these guys are just freaking 
warriors. I, I know we didn't really like Ocelot, but I mean, you get stabbed up under your arm. Like I'd be fucking done. Right. You just throw like, in a towel at that point. That just kill me. <laughs> I'm t- like, I don't know. Maybe if I was really in that position, maybe I'd have a little more fight than flight in me. I don't know. But like to have a knife go through your freaking like in your armpit up through your shoulder, you like that's gotta hurt like hell for one. And then you're bleeding all over. And I guess I'm sure your adrenaline's going like crazy. But like to grab somebody's like hair and like try to rip their neck out. <laughs> like, right with your teeth. Yeah. These, like these guys are both pretty badass. Like maybe as much as I don't want to admit it for Ocelot, like he fucking put up a fight yeah yeah i i guess that's one of the things where like you know ocelot just seems like a dumbass so you just kind of like maybe expect him to not be very smart when it came to like a confrontation but i have a little bit more respect for him after reading this section just a little bit i'm still glad he's fucking dead though yeah i i'm happy he's dead too not not gonna miss him very much. No, I wonder though. What is the you know? Re- I guess I just all after I read the section is what is the repercussions of Ralik's actions here though? Because like someone's gonna notice that Ocelot's not around. He is a clan leader, right? There are other people who probably don't really defy or question him. You know, they just kind of like do what's what what is asked of him so i guess yeah i just don't know what the ramifications are going to be and i'm curious as to see what happens with that well i i know you don't worry about tomorrow's problems today so that's that's tomorrow's problem right i guess in in relic's defense he's i feel like he thinks that he's losing a lot of blood and probably dying which is why he makes the comment or thought rather that Call will be would be avenged and Marilio would just have to take care of it, you know. So I think that he's anticipating that he is supposed to be dying, which I feel like the 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 powder or whatever the you know helped him with the knife too, in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, it, yeah, the the powder. Like I still. I, I still feel like that was a bad idea to do what he did, you know, to put it all on himself. Yeah, I think so too. But I mean, obviously, it saved his life right now. But I, I don't know. But is that? I mean, is that? Uh, I guess I just always go back to like Opon. And I'm sure that, you know, I mean, we know Ralik isn't, you know, the coin bearer, but he's kind of like, you know, associated with the coin bearer. So is Ralik part of a larger scheme? And that's what made him decide to put on the dust. But at the same time, like, that's just me being skeptical. You know, that's just me kind of always assuming that maybe Opon's got his fingers in, inside of many cookie jars. I kind of feel it was almost like a desperation move. Like he just didn't know what else to do. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, that's, that's, that's a good, that's a good way. Of looking like at. he was thinking maybe this will give me a slight advantage. Some bad shit might happen, but 
you know, again, I'll, I'll deal with that later. Right. Yeah. He was definitely motivated to saving Call's life. Yeah, I, I think so. But I can only assume that the, you know, the dust, I mean, he acknowledges that the, the dust of Baruch's powder worked because the, the, the bolt that Ocelot fired disappears and that's just and relic makes the association that that's the case because the bolt was infused with magic so that it wouldn't be like inhibited during flight but, yeah so i it was, it's kind of you know it's I, I feel like it there's you know everything comes with a price right yeah it just this whole section just left a lot of open questions you know yeah it for sure did but at the same time like a little bit of resolve too right like you know that the impending danger with you know call being shot or sniped from a belfry is no longer you know like you're you as a reader are no longer worried about that that part you're no. still kind of like, yeah. what's going to happen with his leg? But you know that the impending... Is, is he going to... Yeah. Is he going to live to get to the Phoenix Inn? I mean, at least, yeah, he's not going to get sniped, but he might just die anyways. Right, right. But yeah, nice nice little kerfuffle. I like to be... Uh, I like this section. Yeah. I think I remember after I read the section the first time, I was just like, Yes! He's dead. <laughs> well, I know, I know. I text you. I had read part of this chapter, and I, this is about the point where I had stopped, and I texted you and asked you if if you had read any, and you hadn't yet. Um, this is where I got to. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, staring up at the uh, bats, looking down at him. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. Do you have any final thoughts for this section, or? What do you think? I think, I think, uh, ready to move on to the next year. Awesome. This one was probably my shortest one. So, um, after seeing no more movement from the Belfry, Paran's gaze swung to the avenue on his left. Vildron was seated on a wagon led by two horses. The guard still next to him asks Paran's help in getting Call off his horse and into the wagon. Hurrying off his horse, Paran jumps down and assists the man. Seeing Call's face, he saw that the man was still unconscious. Paran wonders how much longer Call could last. Comparing himself to the situation, Paran suspects that he would not have made it. Growling at Call, Paran says, after all this, you better live. Guess I don't have anything for this section. Um, you know, it was just... Paran, no long, Paran, God damn it. Paran no longer sees movement in the Belfry and helps call into the wagon and they, you know, he just, after all this is like, you better fucking live. Yeah, gives him some words of encouragement. <laughs> right. Whether he hears that or not, who knows. Yeah, I don't, I don't really have anything to add either. It's just, yeah, pretty, pretty straightforward here. Straightforward and, and, you know, very transitional. So I think it's, it's, I think that what he's trying to do is he's just building suspense within the chapter. Like each time I read about 
Haran in this in this chapter and you know his journey with Call and trying to get him to the Phoenix Inn. As soon as that would sec that section would end without any type of resolve, I'd be like, okay, what's going to happen to Call? You know, and then you read the next section, you know, and so on and so forth. Yeah, I agree. Cool. Well, um, take her away when you're ready. All right, section seven. We will shift shift our focus a little bit here. Surat was. Uh, I was reading this name. Total total tangent here. Surat. I was looking at it like maybe it's Sea Rat. Sea Rat was about to make her move on the woman in the alley. That would leave the coin bearer with one guard, and they would walk right into her trap. She opened her eyes to a mid-morning sun. Her head throbbed and winced in pain as she touched it and sat up. She had been blindsided and attacked by someone good. She worried at that as they had not met anyone that could be this good in Darugistan, aside from the two claws on the night of the ambush. And if it had been one of them, she'd be dead right now. This had been to leave her feeling embarrassed. Perhaps it was open. But gods didn't usually act this directly as they usually used human agents. It was still a mystery, but she knew for sure she lost her chance to kill the coin bearer, at least for another day. And the next time she would be ready for her secret attacker as she discovered disappeared into her crawled Ghislaine Warren. Um, this one, this, this section definitely moved quick. Again, it was a shorter one, but a lot happened in, you know, just a paragraph or so. You got Surratt, who is what? Like she was, she's was ranked pretty high up in strength. I think, you know, as far as the Tisty Andy go and she just gets fucking knocked out by, we don't really know. And I know in the chapter it was described, you know, she wakes up like laying in a, a certain way, like hands at her side or hands across her chest, something like that. And her knives at her side, you know, so whoever, whoever, whatever attacked her, then left her to wake up in a certain way as to, you know, know that something happened, you know, and so that she would be embarrassed about it. Yeah, which that's the part that makes me think that it was Rake. Why, though? I, I couldn't fucking tell you. I'm sure that like that's 100% wrong, but he would be the only one that I could think of that would... Or a traitor within the Tustiande, potentially. I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, because we know it's not... Not sorry... Right, yeah, and you know she was watching Irilta, whatever her name is, you know, um, underneath the, you know, by the tenement steps, in some shadow area. Mies was upstairs in the tenement with Absalar and and Crocus. So I mean, obviously there's some type of unforeseen person who had rendered her unconscious but who i don't know but it's it's driving me crazy i want to know who did it because i i, I agree with her i don't i we haven't seen really we haven't seen any direct influence from opan 
outside of being forced to do so by Paran in the the sword. Right. Yeah, I, I, I guess I didn't even think of Rake, and we don't have a lot of possibilities, and I guess... Personally, I don't love that idea, but I also think maybe you're not wrong. And I don't like it because we know all the Tistiandi that are left live on Moonspawn, so it doesn't make sense that he would take out one of his own to me. But, yeah, who else do we know that's that could do something like this? I I don't know. Krupp? Break it. He's, I think he's too fat and slow. Yeah, but if he's got magical powers, right? Like, I can just kind of see him doing something like that. Like, I don't see him as necessarily the, you know, the, the type that would kill. But I think that if he's overlooking this operation, which we know this was set up by the eel based on the previous chapter. So maybe he sits and, and makes sure that the plan goes smoothly in some type of, you know, I, I feel like Krupp is, is, again, I don't think we're really getting the extent of his abilities. I think that, like, he's pretty fucking good magically. And, you know, as a character, he kind of plays himself off a little bit as dumb or you know, annoying or obnoxious. Like, other people don't really take him seriously is, I guess, where I'm going with this, but the fact that, like, she was in some type of position with her knives, like, orderly cleaned, like, next to her. Not cleaned, but laying next to her, just for whatever reason, makes me think of Krupp as well. I see him doing that as a character. Yeah, I I don't know what to think. And I guess I, I don't know. I don't think we really get. I don't feel like there's a ton of hints. Oh no, absolutely not. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I would agree with that. No hints. We're just we're just left to speculate, really. Right. But and and I guess Crocus lives another day here. Right, that lucky bastard. Ha ha. Uh, I guess the only other thing, which is really, really super minor, but I think it's pronounced Syrah. And the only reason, for whatever reason, every time I see her name, I think of the painter George Syrah, who did that. Um, he did. He did a lot of like pointillism painting. Uh, one. I really, don't know what that is, but you're the artist, so yeah. It. it yeah. It's just a picture made out of millions of dots essentially oh okay yeah you when you if you saw the painting that he's most well known for you would you would recognize it because it's used a lot in media sometimes so i always just that's what i always call her but i could very well be wrong as well I, I bet you're 100 right but i'm still gonna go with sea rat because i i think it's fun do it. Do it. <laughs> See so what I, it is. I have this weird, weird thing that I do with my cat's names. I don't know why, but I'll either... So we have five cats. Uh, Rogue, Sage, Jack, Tarot, and then Hex. But what I'll... For whatever reason, I like to say their names backwards sometimes. So, like, we'll have Egos for sage or toe rat 
for tarot. <laughs> Torad. Torad. So she's probably the one that I pick on the most because I'll call her Torad. But she also happens to be the cat that only likes me. Um, and then Rogue, I'll go Rogui. Just, I don't know why. I'm sure it's some type of, like, stupid language. You know, how, like, <laughs> like baby talk. You know, something like that. I'm glad we could get derailed with that. Oh, we used, I used to have a dog named Sage, also. Oh, was was she around when we were in high school? Yep. Okay. Was she that like they had like a bluish tint to her her fur? Uh she like, was gray. I th- I think the term they actually use for it is livered, but she was like she had like black and kind of like grayish. Gotcha. Gotcha. I think I remember that dog. Yeah. She's a good dog. Didn't she eat my foot pillow that I made in like seventh grade? She could have. She could have. I don't remember. I didn't like that pillow. (laughs) Well, it was a good meal for a dog then. (laughs) Oh, okay. All right. So uh, cats apparently are the, uh, the theme of this show today. Yeah. Yes, we forgot about uh, what we're reading and just decided to talk about cats. Right, yes, we definitely could. Yes, I'm good at that. Just kidding. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, if you're if you're good, I'm good. I'm good. All right. Within the attic of the Phoenix Inn slept Absalar and Crocus, granted on opposite sides of the building, Me sat cleaning her nails, leaving Mallet's tenement and making their way across the rooftops had been easy. Irilta had confirmed that no one had followed them from the streets. It was as if a path free of obstruction had been made for them. Continuing her thought, she wonders if this is the brilliance of the eel. Quickly smothering that thought, she realized she was putting too much weight on that pretense. As she felt felt eyes on her. That would be impossible, though, and she dismisses this feeling. There came a soft knock on the trap door, and Irilta opened it and asked for Mies. Mies tells Irilta to tell Skurv that there's a fire waiting to happen up here. Irilta enters and closes the trap door. She tells Mies that it's getting strange downstairs. Continuing to explain that a guard and a strange man approached the inn carrying Call in a wagon. Skurv had placed Call in Krupp's room below, and is asking for a cutter. Irilta admits that it doesn't look good for Call. Mies asks what this other one looks like. Irilta makes a jab about getting Paran in the sack, and explains that Paran had found Call, and Call was conscious long enough to tell him to bring Call here. He's downstairs eating enough for three men. Mies simply says, foreigner? Irilta moves to the window and explains that Paran was from the north, pale, but spoke to Rue as if he was born here. Mies just asks if there was word from the eel. Irelta says that the boy and the girl are to stay here. She then you know, begins to explain that there were two guards waiting at Mammoth's place, and they were lucky to get Crocus out in time. Leaning forward, she admits to Mies that she swears she is seeing, seeing something or someone. When she blinks, they are gone. Standing up, 
Me says that she shares that feeling. Um, so nothing to do with anything that happened here, but I don't know if you caught that I said leaving Mallet's Mallet's tenement. Did you catch that? I did. Uh, so in the book, I I feel like I have found as you know, probably an oversight in editing. I'm pretty sure that they meant to write Mammoth and not Mallet's tenement. So I was ah, thrown I, off by that at first. And then I had to like reread it and I'm like, did that say Mallet? That said Mallet. It's supposed to be Mammoth. Mallet is with Whiskey Jack. Ah, the devil in the details. Good catch. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I feel like that's the first one that we've encountered in this book, which I mean, I'm not, I'm not like that critical, but I just thought it was interesting and very well could throw readers off the first time if, if they're not catching it, you know? Right. And also, is there anybody Irilta and me won't fuck? Like, I feel like, I mean, it kind of seems like if there's a pulse, it's fair game. (laughs) Oh, oh, oh. Oh, God. That's a good way to put it. Uh, From what we've seen so far. Yeah. So I guess the only other thing that, like, I really stood out to me in this section was both Mies and Arilta kind of feel somebody watching them. So I'm wondering if. Like, if for whatever reason they're like the eel is watching them, kind of going back to like my Krupp theory with you know Sarah on the root on the roof, but also at the same time, like we know that Sarah you know embraced her Warren, so like did she catch up to them already, or you know what's going on? You know what I mean? Right. But yeah, it's just weird that you know two of these people are having you know, similar issues and that they get this strange feeling that they're being watched, you know? I think it's definitely C-Rat. Surat. <laughs> hey, man, I'm just reading it as it's written. No, no worries. I'm reading it very phonetically. If there are uh, listeners out there that uh, that can guide us in the correct pronunciation, please do. P.S. I know I'm wrong. <laughs> it's okay. I mean, I'm pretty sure that, I mean, Krupp, we were way off about. Remember Krupp? <laughs> Krupp? Krupp! Yeah, that was fun while it lasted. Yeah, yeah, I'm glad it was short-lived. I don't know if I could keep calling him that, because Krupp just makes so much more sense to me. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it, it feels like it fits, whereas Krupp doesn't really so but yeah i guess did you have any thoughts on on meese and erelta and sleeping paran and absalar here not really i mean I, the you know meese and eralta i i kind of wonder like how did they end up where they're at where you know like they're obviously like helping but is it because they're in it for the cause or like some other reason? Like, I'm not sure about that. Yeah. that's a good point. I would assume that, you know, the eel has done his, his due diligence, right. And 
recruiting people for for his cause right and i would assume that that would you know uh require people of the same like-mindedness yeah it just yeah i mean that still feels kind of weird with them like i don't know how far i would trust them because what the first time we met them they were beating some guy with a stick that was hanging by his feet on a rope right yeah that's true that's true but i mean kind kind of odd circumstances yeah i guess i don't recall the events of why that dude was strung up but i feel like (laughs) he just was (laughs) oh they didn't explain it i thought i don't think so i think they're just like yeah either and he like asked to be let down or something i don't remember exactly what it was but yeah i don't think there was a lot of uh explanation there we just we walk into the room here's this guy dangling by his feet getting the shit kicked out of him maybe he dunked too many cats yeah it could have been yeah if that is a euphemism for something but <laughs> who knows but yeah okay well i mean i say we can move onward all right Paran filled his mug again. He wondered what the tisty Andy had meant about his luck changing. Since coming to, quote, this land, he had met three friends. Tattersail was dead and kind of been reborn. Talk was dead and call likely to be dead soon. He drew his sword, drove it through the planks of the table as a few regulars watched. He took a drink of beer and remembered what Rake had said. When your luck turns, break the sword or give it to your worst enemy. He didn't think Open would take the sword, so he had to break it. He had his sword for so long, but only used it once, against the hound. He heard the echoes of words from one of his tutors. And I will read that quote here again, because it was was another good one. Um, I don't think it was as good as uh, the one from Fiddler, but the... Tudor says, to whom the gods choose, tis said, they first separate from other mortals by treachery, by stripping from your spirit's lifeblood. The gods will take all you, your loved ones one by one to their death. And as you harden, as you become what they seek, the gods smile and nod. Each company you shun brings you closer to them. Tis the shaping of a tool, son. The prod and pull and the final sucker they offer you is to end your loneliness. The very isolation they helped you create. Never get noticed, boy. He wondered if he was responsible for Call's life. Speaking out loud, he told Alpen that he had a lot to answer for and he would answer for it. Yeah, I feel like Rake has has clearly gotten inside of Paran's head a little bit. And I think that like at this point he's questioning, you know, he is taking Tattersail dead and being reborn and then Tak being dead, which I guess that came to me as a real big surprise. But we can come back to that later. And then he thinks I don't think he's dead. No, I don't think he's dead either, but I think that this is just Haran. Haran's in a mood. Like he's he's clearly broken up and his spirits, like this quote is saying, are kind of broken at this point. So 
I think that he's kind of at the standstill where it has my luck actually turned. Should I just break the sword because I can't give it to my worst enemy, et cetera, et cetera, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I can't, no, I can't really do that very well. So, yeah, I just... Why do you think Erickson would throw the talk is dead in here? Do you think it's just kind of like he's really just trying to get a sense of how Paran is feeling in this moment? Like, he seems fucking pissed. I mean, he's gone, you know, for right now, for all intents and purposes. Like, kind of seems like he's dead, but as a reader, I just don't buy it. And maybe, I mean, maybe he is gone. But wasn't there like a, wasn't there a quote, somebody was talking to talk and maybe it wasn't talk, but something, you know, he'd see something in like 30,000 years or whatever. You remember what that was? Am I making any sense? Uh, No, I'm not recalling anything. Maybe it wasn't talk. I know. I, the only thing that comes to mind is when Krupp and Karul and the Rivi and that other that other Talani mass. I forget Pran. Pran maybe. I think is his name. Are maybe that's what I'm thinking of. Talking about like him coming. Yeah, I, he's some type of bone caster. Yeah, I. I feel like time was all warped in that segment in Krupp's dream there. So that's what's coming to mind as you're describing it, but I very well could be wrong. I mean, we... I think that's what I was thinking of. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay. Fair enough. But yeah, I just, I, I can't, I can't imagine talk is dead, but it just maybe brings me back to our, our original conversation after that event took place with Hairlock, and he was tossed into the rent and no mention of him you know, or his well-being. So, like, is, is this it for talk? And, yeah, I don't know. How does it get... Yeah, I, I fucking... I don't know. There's just so many damn questions at this point. Yeah. I just can't... I can't think that's how his story's going to end and that's going to be like Poofy's gone. I I don't think that's it. Yeah, maybe somewhere in this story, maybe not even in this book, but maybe in future books, like somebody realizes that they need talk for something or another and they, you know, go and rescue him from wherever he is, you know. I guess that I can make that a hill that I'll die on. Build that hill high, buddy. Do it. But yes, didn't even sound like you. Do it. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I guess they're just all of these sections. Just I feel like they're just building. They're building tension, and they're they're uh, they're just they're transitional pieces. They're just supposed to set up for the next the next whatever is coming. You know. I feel like a lot of it's building here for these last couple sections. And that's what I'm wondering if it, if it's purely just building to the last couple of sections or if it's building for more that needs to be read. You know what I mean? 
we got 130 odd pages to go. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's crazy. It's crazy to me. Like I can feel the thickness of the book starting to be more towards the left side of my hand, which I always oh, prefer yeah. that more than the right side for some reason. I don't know why. I always like the way that it feels the thickness in the left hand than I do in, in the right. I've never put any thought into that before, Justin. Yeah, I, I don't know why. It, it just it was something that I discovered in when I was reading through the Wheel of Time. And you know, those are some thick boys. So those are some a bit chonky. Chonky. There's the word. So yeah, I don't know why. I just always preferred the way it felt in my left hand versus my right. I'll pay attention to that, see if I notice anything. But yeah, I've never thought about it. You know, out of context, that sounds really bad. <laughs> eh, just go with it. Just go with it. Okay, I'm talking about books, not other things. Um, hey, man, if it feels good, do it. <laughs> Will do, dude. Will do. <laughs> I'll be here all night. <laughs> all right, cool. Uh, but yeah, I guess, did you have any other thoughts for this section? I did not. All right, well, I'm going to move on to the, the second to last section for me here. Take it away. Climbing the steps of the Phoenix Inn, Kalam paused. The feeling of unseen eyes he had sensed at least four times since entering near the inn. His claw training had told him to be wary, knowing full well that whoever watched him knew who and what he was. Curiously, he feels amused by this revelation. Entering the bar, Kalam sensed that something was wrong. There were people in the bar, but why all the silence? Observing that everyone had had their backs to him, he saw what their attention he saw that their attention was on a man who was holding his sword handle that had been thrust through the table he sat at. Pushing himself back from the counter, he felt tension around his neck and shoulders as he strode towards the man. The man looked close to snapping the sword in half. Grabbing an empty chair, Kalam slams it down at the table. Startled eyes stare back at him. Kalam tells the captain that his God-given luck holds, telling the captain in a low rumble to sit down. Releasing the sword, Paran does so. Kalam follows suit and leans forward to ask the captain what all the drama was about. Frowning, Paran asks Kalam who the fuck he is. Telling Paran who he was, and that the last time he had seen the captain was when he had had two fatal daggers wounds in him. Like a viper, Paran grabs Kalam's shirt. Kalam, too surprised to have anticipated the outburst, Paran asks Kalam if his squad's healer was still alive. Still in shock, Kalam stutters a response to which Paran interrupts, ordering Kalam to bring him here. Paran, Paran releases the grip on Kalam's shirt and does as ordered. Again, pretty, pretty straightforward still. Yeah, he's, he's kind, of a, kind of a grubby little bitch. Yeah, you better, you better settle down a little bit. Somebody's gonna you run into a bigger, badder guy. Is gonna smack you around. I just thought it was funny that, well, maybe not funny, but 
you know, I guess I don't really see Kalam being taken by surprise like that. So it just, it made it seem like it was just that quick of a strike, you know? Yeah, it was uh, just kind of out of nowhere. A little abuse of power, though, don't you think? Yeah, it's kind of kind of going to his head a bit. Yeah, I, I don't know. It just kind of like, it encapsulates how Haran must feel. And, you know, going back to some of the previous sections in this chapter, he's just pissed. He's just not thinking straight and just, there's no calmness or coolness about any of the way that he's behaving, you know? So, but I mean, I can understand, like I can empathize with where he is. So I guess I'm not going to call him a whiny bitch. Like I have some other characters. Oh, Crocus. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's kind of, kind of ballsy here with everything he's doing, but at the same time, like, He's already died once, right? Like, it doesn't really seem to scare him. Like, he's doing all this stuff, like, all right, well, what are you going to do? Kill me? Right. I've been there, man. Done that. Not a big deal. No, not at all. Yeah. But I still think he he does kind of need to be put into his place a little bit here. Yeah, he's, he's acting a damn fool. I, I, I liked I liked the intensity of the way that Kalam approaches Haran, you know, just kind of like slamming a chair in front of him and like leaning forward to be all like, "What the fuck are you doing? Why are you being so damn dramatic, dude?" You know. Yeah, I definitely got the feeling it was like a dick measuring contest here a little bit, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I guess that's a better way to put it. But yeah, it's kind of how I felt about it. <laughs> it's just. All of these sections just build build suspense. Like, what is this setting up to? You know, is what I keep constantly going back to after I read a lot of these sections. So, well, I, I think we get quite a bit of payoff here in the next section. Read on. Do you have anything else you want to add? I wasn't pushing forward, but oh no, I I, I don't I. Again, I feel like pretty much all of these sections outside of the one you're getting to are very just transitional. They're set up, you know, but also kind of moving and pacing the action along. Yeah. Well, hold on to your butts, boys and girls. This was not a terribly long chapter, but this was a pretty long section, and it was... It was meaty. There was a lot to it here. So I've got, I don't know, over, probably over a page and a half summarizing here. Um, and again, it's it's not going to do it justice to the actual book. But here we go. Brian called for the innkeeper saying that the black man would be here in a few minutes with company and to send them to Call's room immediately. Pran headed to the stairs, looked back, and said, nobody better touch his sword. He headed up to Call's room. The surgeon in the room said it's too late. The infection is too far gone. Pran asked if he was still breathing. The surgeon replied, for now, but not for long. If it had been further down his leg, he might have been able to cut it off, but the poison spread throughout all of him. 
Pren asks what he owes him, and the surgeon says nothing because he failed. A few minutes later, the, a man entered, and Pren asked if it was Mallet. He shook his head and entered. Behind him was Whiskey Jack. He asks Bran what the fuck he's doing here. Mallet puts his hand on the bandages and notices the rot and says he's gone. Suddenly, he's digging into the wound. Someone stuffed it with herbs. The cut was halfway through the bone, and the herbs poisoned the marrow. He pushes everyone back for some space and says, Another minute, and he'd be dead. Be thankful he's here and as good as he is. Bran went to Whiskey Jack and asked if Lorne had contacted, contacted him. All he got was a blank response, so he knew he was in time. He tells Whiskey Jack he's been set up. The plan is to take the city, yes, but also to kill him. Whiskey Jack asks if he and Tattersail worked this out. Fran tells Whiskey Jack she's dead, chasing Hairlock out of the Ruby Plain. Teshren got to her. She intended to pass this information on to him. Unfortunately, Pran won't be her equal as an ally when the adjunct shows up. Kalam spoke up and said he doesn't like the idea of Open's pawn helping them. Pran says he's not Open's, but the sword downstairs is. Their wizard should be able to confirm this. Pran says the adjunct will have no problems finding him, but she's not the major threat. She has a Talan Imus with her. Whiskey Jack asked Kalam for a satchel. He took out an object and unwrapped it. Pran asked what it was. It was a knife made from yellowed human forearms. Whiskey Jack explained that in the days of the Empire, the inner ring of military commanders each had one, treasure looted from a Kachain Chamal tomb. He says they attributed a lot of success to them as he drove the point into the table. A white light shot out of the bones, spinning. Pran heard a voice that he was able to recognize. It was Dujek. He tells Whiskey Jack that he's getting worried. Whiskey Jack says it was unavoidable and they had little to report until now, but he needs to know the situation in pale. Dujek says Teshrin is, quote, stumbling in circles. He was last happy when Bellardin and Tattersail were killed. Now he only has questions. What game is open up to? Was there a fight between Rake and Shadowthrone? Did a soul-shifted puppet kidnap, torture, and kill a claw officer and what was revealed by the, quote, old man. They told Dujek they didn't know Hairlock did any of that. He believes Whiskey Jack and tells him that the Empress must think destroying his army will bring him back under the Empire's heel, and also that the adjunct and IMS have reached the Jagat's bar barrel. The fate of the world is with them in Darugistan. If they unleash the Jagat, they are meant to be on the casualty list, and Teshran will set things in motion by announcing the bridge burners are disbanded. Now, Dujek says it's Whiskey Jack's turn. Whiskey Jack says Paran is alive and he's with them right now, and that Open is working through his sword, not him directly. Dujek asks if Tak was any help, and Paran says he gave his life for the cause. Hairlock ambushed them and threw Tak into a hole of some sort. Dujek apologizes for the loss and asks what to do with Paran. What choice will he make? Paran says that Teshran killed Tattersail, though he purposefully leaves out that she has been reborn. 
and that he plans to defy the Empire over it. He wants vengeance. He needs more details before he commits, though. Dujek says the Empress will lose the continent. They have enough support for that. Nathalog and Genabaris will revolt, and the Morath, Moranth alliance will fall apart. The plan may not make a lot of sense right now, but they are preparing for a much nastier enemy. The Panian Seer. He wants a holy war and is preparing for it. If it's vengeance he wants, then leave Tashren to the enemies near home, and Lorne was all his. Paran agrees to the terms, but prefers that Whiskey Jack stay in command. Whiskey Jack agrees and tells Dujek they will speak after it's done. Whiskey Jack says its clear plans have changed. Someone is ensuring the Jenna back in campaign fails. Not even Dujek will let that happen. So for now, Lorne needs to live. Paran tries to interject, but is cut off. She's on her way to the city. Assuming her and the Imus were successful in freeing the Jack Hut. They will need a reason to come to the city, and that's Lorne. Lorne will find them, and they'll decide what to do with her. If Paran challenges her, he will die. And if it is necessary, she will die, but her downfall will be subtle. He asks Paran if, any, if he has any problems with this. He gives in and says no, but he wants to know why they mined the city. Whiskey Jack says in a moment and asks who the wounded man is. Mallet says he's not wounded anymore. Bran says he'll explain, but he needs a sword first and goes to retrieve it. As he walks, walks out, he asks where Sari is. Kalam says she's missing, but they do know what she is. Does he? Bran says he knows as well. Good job on oh, it. Oh, boy. Dude. That was a lot. Yeah. And... I tried to cover as best I could and I it's just one of those things I mean there's just so much there I, I feel like I just have to read the whole section like word for word but yeah I mean we we get so much information here like it's just wild so uh, reading this like just the fact that, uh, you know, we're well over three quarters into this book. I mean, we're in the final stretch of this book and you find out like, okay, yeah, we're, we're still fighting these, these forces, but there's actually something worse that we're going to deal with. And I mean, from the sounds of it, they've known about it for a little bit, but it's just being brought up now. Like it's, it's like throwing a wrench in both wheels on your bike, I guess. Like I did not see that coming. <laughs> yeah, I didn't see that coming either. But, you know, I guess what, what sucks is like you're just left with speculation as to what this Pananian, Pananian, I don't even know how to say the fucking word. This year, you know, is what he is or what they are, you know, like you... You have no idea outside of they just announced this dude as or this person as you know something that thwarts everything else. You know what I mean? But you don't get any other context to it. So I'm assuming it'll all be revealed in good time. But it it makes me all the more anxious to read on. Yeah, like I mean, you know, we keep 
reading about the Empress and Lorne and how they're assholes and like, oh, there's a bigger, badder asshole out here. <laughs> like, we're not even really worried about these other guys anymore. Like, eh, this guy we got to deal with. Right. And I mean, you know, Lorne and, and uh, Tool are essentially in the process of awaking a Jag Hut tyrant. Tyrant. And they're like, yeah, whatever. This other dude's more of a concern. Like, he might mess some stuff up, but, like, the Panty and Sears really get to make things a mess. Right. Exactly. So, it just, and, and again, it just kind of adds to where this chapter is going. And, again, all of the setup that I feel that this, I feel like this chapter is just one big setup for things. For all of these different characters who are essentially kind of converging. And... I know we talked a little bit about it um, before we hit the record button, but I just think it's funny that this is the first time, like 520 pages into the book, out of like 670 or something like that, where Whiskey Jack and Paran finally meet, like formally. You know, I know that Whiskey Jack was was there when Paran was stabbed and, you know, could recognize him, but Paran, you can't say the same thing. I just thought that was interesting. Yeah, it's just, it's, I don't even know how to describe it, man. Like, you just got if you've listened this far and haven't read the book, you should probably start reading this book. <laughs> right, right. That's all, that's all I can say. I mean, it, 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 I guess I just, I relate it to the feeling of just having, having more shit piled on your plate, you know, like there's all of this stuff happening and you're aware of it, but as a reader, now you're introduced to all this stuff, but your plate is still full of, of stuff that you haven't even like touched yet, you know? Yeah. It's, it's, it's like finding the dessert underneath your green beans or something. I don't know. Like you just, you're like, Oh, okay. I'm getting through this. And I'm like, what, what is this? Right. Right. Um, I guess outside of, you know, the whole seer fiasco and everything that we just talked about, do you remember when the fuck anybody put herbs on in calls leg? I don't remember that at all. So, like, did did the surgeon who failed, like, is that, was that one of his attempts that he tried? I, I don't specifically, it's not mentioned what he did. He All that's mentioned is, is that he couldn't cut it because it was too high up on the leg. And it, like, yeah, the poison basically spread through his body. Right, but it kind of seems like the herbs have been there for a while. I mean, why? I mean, I guess fast-acting poison. But I mean, I I don't remember who put herbs in there, unless that was something that maybe Call did in attempt to remedy himself before he met up with Paran. That would be the other scenario that would make sense to me. But I don't I don't know who put the I don't know who put the herbs there or in his leg. 
I don't know either. I don't remember reading anything about that, but I, I feel like the odds of us both missing it are pretty low. Right. So I feel like that's intentional or, yeah, there's some, again, some type of setup to that, you know, or, you know, those who are listening, if you have any insights on it, please, please let us know. But again, you know, don't, if it's a spoiler thing, don't say anything about it. Just tell us to Rafo. But yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. That had me puzzled when I read this. Yeah, I agree. Just, I don't know, unless it's one of those things where, you know, it's just the plot kind of demands it, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Because it, you know, it kind of seems like Paran was unaware of it because he has no idea when he's asked about it. So, I, I mean, I, I just, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm having a hard time pinpointing where at one point in Call's journey, journey or after he was cut with by Lauren's sword, where someone put herbs in it. And uh, I mean, Perrin's a captain. He's going to have, he's got to have some like first aid skills. And he'd be like, oh yeah, we stuffed some plants in his leg. Like you probably remember like that happening. Right. Yeah. Unless he's just denying it. I mean, I guess there's endless possibilities. The only other thing that I can think of is, is potentially maybe we misunderstood what the, the doctor having a rough night was, you know, maybe he did end up helping, but I always just imagined that he couldn't help because he was, you know, sleeping off his bad night. Yeah, I just thought he was he was kind of on a bender, right? Right. So I just just I just associated that that wouldn't be something that he would he assisted with, and that the bandages that they were given were just in lieu of the doctor not being able to help. Right. Yeah. Like here you go. Best of luck. See you later. <laughs> right. But I guess the other cool thing is is uh, what did you think about the. Uh, the uh, the way that Dujek and Whiskey Jack communicated here. Excuse me. Um, yeah, I guess it was cool, and I don't know why I didn't even like pop up on my radar. But yeah, you've got like some sort of weird knife made out of people bones. <laughs> people bones. And it's a fucking cell phone, basically, <laughs> right? Right. Yeah. My arm bones isn't a denim. <laughs> There we go. We should start a brand called Arm Bones. There you go. Yeah. Let's do it. But. Yeah, it was. Uh, it's definitely interesting. Like, one of those things you haven't really, I haven't seen before. Just all this, like, stuff. Like, where did Erickson get all these ideas from? And again, to keep all this stuff straight, like, so it makes sense, you know. I I don't know. It's beyond me. Yeah, I'm very impressed by the way that he's describing and just you know where he's coming up with the ideas for these things are just fucking genius to me, you know. But I just I feel like it. This section really reiterates and and brings us the reader back to things that are happening in Pale. You know, 
Tayshran and Dujak. Tayshran doesn't know what he's doing, clearly. I mean, we got a sense of that a long time ago, that he doesn't seem like he's really knows what he's doing. But for some reason, Lucene and Lauren are like, yeah, continue on. And, you know, he, we know that he's satisfied with the fact that Bellard and, and Tattersail were killed because they were all part of, you know, essentially the previous Empire. Which seems to kind of be like the only clear-cut concrete goal that we know of from, you know, the current em- Empress. Is that she wants she wants that loyalty dead to the previous Emperor. Yep. Yeah, that's I mean she wants any empire wants to expand and control more and yeah, on top of that she just wants to wipe out the memory of the previous one. Right. So I feel like a lot of a lot of uh you know conversation between Dujek and Whiskey Jack and, and Paran, you know, some are are I guess different point of views on events that we've read about specifically from i think tishran we all uh, could have anticipated that he probably would have been happy about the knowledge of billardin and tattersail but you know also dujek and and what he's trying to hold down in pale and all of these different things that are happening you know like with the black moranth and nathalog and jennibaris and you know the alliances falling apart and yeah, there's just yeah, there's just so much that happens. It's hard to do it justice with every specific thing, but I feel like those are are the pretty big, the big points in the section. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree. I I don't really have anything to add to that. You summed it up pretty well. Do you do you have any speculation on why Paran left out what he knows about Tattersail? I think he doesn't fully trust what's going to happen. I think he doesn't know how far he can trust these these people. This is kind of my feeling. So it's I I almost feel like it's kind of his ace in the hole. If things go south, you know, he could almost like track her down. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean. I guess we don't really know what Tattersail is going to want to do once she, you know, is she going to have memory and stuff, you know, of what happened and maybe she's going to be pissed and want to go on a rage. And if, if, if uh, Pran's not happy, maybe he'll just side with her. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I don't know. Pran is kind of confusing to me in this chapter because, you know, clearly he's pissed off because, and, you know, indecisive as to whether or not, you know, he still has his, his luck from Opan and his sword, debating whether he should break that because of all of these tragic events. But at the same time, do you find it weird that he's just okay with the plan and having to let Lorne live, even though he, you know, pretty much explained to Dujek, you know, that he wants vengeance, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera? I just thought that that was weird that, you know, I guess there wasn't really any, any explanation on the way that he reacted to the reasons that Lauren had to live. 
I think it's kind of related to his station. I mean, he's a captain, right? You don't get to captain by accident. I mean, you got to be smart. You got to be a good tactician. You got to be a good soldier. So I think he knows he's just going to have to wait for his moment. Got it. Got it. And so maybe he doesn't like that. But in the long run, it's it's going to be better. Gotcha. That's, that's kind of my thought. No, that's good. I have no further questions. I mean, I'm not going to pretend I'm some great military mastermind by any means. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's just, just kind of my thought. Makes sense. But yeah, I guess uh, I feel like I should have more to talk about in there, but I, I don't. I can't think of anything else. I feel like we've touched on the major points. Go ahead and uh, we can move on here if you're ready. I'm ready. All right, let's move on to the uh, the last section here. Tool and Lorne make their way through to the center of the barrow. Tool turns to Lorne and explains that the object she seeks is called the Finnest, explaining to Lorne that within it stores the Jaghut's powers, but warns that once he realizes it's missing, he will hunt it down. Trying to warm her fingers and hands, Lorne asks what will happen when she has it in her possession. Tool explains that the Ota Terrell sword will deaden its aura some, but should not remain in her hands for long. Lorne scanned the objects on the lintel stone. Reaching for a mirror encased in deer antler, she hesitates. Beside it, almost lost in the frost, as a small round object, it lay on an animal hide of some kind. Frowning as she picked it up, with the ice melting from the warmth of her hands, she cleans it off and observes that it's not perfectly round. Tool chimes in and explains that it's an acorn. Lorne nods and acknowledges that this is the finest, and that it was an odd choice. Tool shrugs and explains to Lorne that the Jaghut were an odd people. Lorne, directing her question to Tool, tells him that the Jaghut were not warlike before Tool's kind sought to destroy them. Tool was slow to reply to this, but eventually explains that the key is making them angry enough to destroy indiscriminately. Pocketing the finest, she says, let's get out of here. So, I had um, two movie references that came to mind when I read this section. And All right. the first one was the um, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade when they're at the very end of the movie and they're in the Knights Temple and they're all, there's all of these like goblets that represent like the Holy Grail. You've seen that movie, right? It's been a bit, but yeah. Okay. <laughs> Basically, Indiana Jones has to pick out the real, the real um, cup of Christ, essentially. And in all of the, there's just like a table that surrounds the whole room filled with different types of cups designed in different ways. So that was one thing that kind of like came to mind is, you know, there's all these items on the stone and Lauren has to find out which is the finest that, you know, houses the Jay cuts powers. So that was the first reference. The other movie reference was from the mummy because 
I got, you know, have you seen that movie? The Mummy? Rachel Weiss and Brendan, Brendan Fraser. Yeah. Yeah, dude, those are awesome. Yeah, awesome. I love those movies too. But you know how uh, the Americans take like the organ jars from uh, Hamanoptera? That's kind yeah, of. Yeah, I kind of remember. That's, that's been a long time since I've watched that too. And then the mummy, in order to like fully get its powers back, has to go find these people that have taken his organ jars and then oh right yeah them. yeah yeah so that's kind of like what i got with the whole you know taking the finest and she shouldn't have it in her hands for long because the jake hut once he once he awakens will pretty much go on a tirade trying to find it so in your head canon is brendan fraser paran no. <laughs> I love how you just instantly shot that down. <laughs> no. Have you seen what Brendan Fraser looks like nowadays? No. Okay. Look him up when we're done. But. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Did you just look him up? No. Oh, okay. Yeah, totally do that. But yeah, I I guess just the the level of the level again. I go back to I guess this is the third group movie reference, and I know that we already referenced this, but when we were talking about the Jacob Barrow Barrow, but just the whole you know aliens versus predators, just that whole type of like tundra type of cold atmosphere. You know, Erickson did a magnificent job again explaining explaining their journey into the barrel. Yeah. I'm uh, wondering what's going to happen with tool and, and Lauren now that it kind of seems like they have accomplished their mission. And I know that in a previous, previous chapter tool was talking about, you know, taking off and kind of welcomed Lauren to, to, you know, think, keep him company so to speak so i'm curious as to where that that leads us to but yeah yeah we'll have to read and find out raffo i'm not sure where that's gonna go just makes me anxious to continue on i just i feel like I feel like a lot of things have been like nicely tied off but at the same time like more things have just been unleashed so yes excuse me Whew, sorry yeah it uh you know there's been a lot that's happened and we've been introduced to some new stuff and yeah I guess we'll see what happens in this last uh well we got one chapter left of this book but we're coming up to the final sub book of uh, this book. Are we? I know we have one chapter left in the city of blue light. And then it is the fit fit. Unfit? The fit. I'm not French. Yeah, you're right. We are coming up on the last sub book. That kind of makes me a little sad. But anxious to cap it off, you know? Yeah. Yeah, probably, well, what, roughly the end of this month? 
beginning next month, we'll be done with this book. Yeah. Do you remember how, uh, I think it was last episode, we were talking about, we you know, the meaning of this book, Gardens of the Moon, and how we couldn't quite place it? A little bit, yeah. Like, I mean, we haven't heard anything about the gardens or anything, what this Garden of the Moon is. Yeah, I guess, I don't know why, I feel like it was maybe a little obvious, maybe obvious, but I feel like the moon doesn't represent the moon. I feel like it represents moon spawn in some way. Yeah, I've been thinking that too. I guess I just, for whatever reason, every time I read the title, I just think of it too literally. And going back and like really thinking about it, you know, there's a, you know, Rake's kind of a, a pretty prominent character at this point. And, you know, his story is a little depressing. So I, yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe there's some type of like new something or another with the Tistiande that, you know, brings new life like a garden. I, I don't, I don't fucking know. I just, yeah. Maybe they have a, a different view on the world because of events that unfold at just speculating again. I do not have any speculations to add to yours. No worries. Um, I guess yeah. If if you're if you're good, I think that we can wrap up the summary and and the end the episode. Quite gracefully here, huh? <laughs> We're doing a bang up job. Yeah, it's okay. I think that the the way that we can maybe cap this off is and we i told you last night uh we got our first we got our first dislike on our prologue episode on youtube like i know that one probably sounded like garbage it yeah you know we've come we've come a little bit ways but yeah i'm not like butthurt about it or anything it's just it i guess to me it's always one of those things where like that's the episode that either like draws people in or not you know it's like it's like when season when like a show that you're anticipating and the first episode just absolutely sucks like part of you doesn't even want to like continue on you know and so like i've noticed with the trend on a lot of these podcast platforms and youtube is that the prologue has the most views but then episode one is significantly less so i'm wondering how many people are being deterred but at the same time like that's our journey i'm not going to change it i'm satisfied because without that episode we wouldn't be where we are we wouldn't have recognized that hey we need probably some decent sound equipment hey we probably need to come up with some type of format you know, so um, I, I'm going to appreciate for what it was and the way that it, it got our journey to where we are. For sure. Yeah, I guess the, you know, if you want to give us like a dislike, whatever, that's cool, but maybe throw a comment there and be like, hey, I didn't like this. You know, so we can try to grow from it and change whatever we're doing to not even you know, to be more appealing to an individual, but maybe as a broader sense. 
Right, because uh, other know, people are feeling sometimes it's way. right. Exactly, yeah. Other people might be feeling that way, but only one person maybe said something. So we can we can handle constructive criticism. Just don't be a dickhead. Right, right. Don't be a dick. So even yeah, like a dislike is not a dickhead move by any means. But no, it just caught me off guard. So, but it. Uh, it makes me appreciate the listeners that we have, uh, I guess, congruently. I don't know if that's the right term. Consistently. So, again, thank you again to all who have followed us, listened to us, um, talk about this book. And like I said, uh, I think that Derek and I are very committed individuals, and we really want to see this series come to fruition uh, even though it's it's going to be a long journey but that is why it is uh, our epic quest yeah I wouldn't want to be doing this with anybody else that's what I'm saying it's been fun <laughs> always fun it has been fun for sure there's some of the cockamamie ideas that we that we come up and, and banter about is is great I often find myself <laughs> at the like the end of, after we record, and even when I'm editing uh, the episode, like chuckling quite a bit at some of the shit that we say. So yeah, but, if anything, it's a good excuse to spend some time talking to a friend about a book. Very well written book, yes. But it just it makes me. It, I'm proud. I'm proud of what we've done and and what we've accomplished, and. Hopefully, after we are done with the Books of the Fallen, we can continue to read this for other series or, you know, one-off books or, you know, things like that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's, it's fun and I want to see it grow and, and obviously do well, but none of those things take time, so there's, there's not any rush by any means. Right, exactly. But yeah, I guess uh, with that being said, um, I'll probably bid you adieu. You have a good night, buddy. Yeah, you do the same, man. Take care. Later.